Welcome, everyone, to our Experience Podcast, an ASCP podcast. We have our version of Rage Against the Machine. I'm here, Tom Hansel, with my co-host, Chad Wirtz, and we are going to talk about Rage Against the Machine. And we can see the temperature relief on the horizon as we end summer and compose to the end of a really blistering, sizzling summertime. But more daunting heat come to us in pharmacy reimbursement challenges. What will the Inflation Reduction Act and continued threats from PBMs do to keep the sweltering heat hanging over our industry? As we navigate the scorching terrain, we find ourselves parched for proper support, like desert wanderers searching for an oasis. The sun beats down on us, leaving us frustrated, wondering how to keep our pharmacy from feeling like a desert mirage. But fret not as our, our expert speaker steps forward like a seasoned lifeguard armed with the coolest tips and ideas to help us beat the heat of reimbursement hurdles. Our guest comes to us with decades of GPO, insurance, and pharmacy reimbursement knowledge. Today, we will talk to her about current reimbursement challenges, hear suggestions on staying hydrated with proper strategies, and look ahead to getting our thirst quenched on how to maximize reimbursement in this budding long-term care at home marketplace. I want to introduce Sarah Fenwick. Sarah, welcome to our show. Please take some time and tell us a little bit about your background before we jump into our questions. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Chad, for having me here today. I appreciate the invitation to participate in a lively discussion today. As you've mentioned, I've been in the business for over 20 years now and continue to serve the advocacy needs of the pharmacy business. I started out my career in the PBM space and in 2009, transitioned over to the pharmacy space, working in the GPO business and retail pharmacy and long-term care pharmacy. Much of my time has been spent in the long-term care space. I've also been a member of NCPDP for, since 2008 and have continued to advocate for the pharmacy business and represent their interests in pharmacy. Sarah, tell us. I know that you are in this grind every day. You're battling with PBMs and, and there's all kinds of changes going on. We're getting some positive feedback from uh, Congress and, and, and uh, different senators and, and congressmen and women that are they're becoming aware. But from you know living this your whole life, tell me kind of what's the state of the current union when it comes to PBMs and if you feel that there's any real kind of push for potential change. Right now, with the Inflation Reduction Act, I think that PBMs are currently trying to get their footing underneath them with the changes that are going to be coming in 2024. A lot of those are going to be stemming around the DIR going away. This redefinition of you know contracted rates for drugs is changing the landscape of the PBM industry, and so I think that they're seeing a significant shift in the paradigm of reimbursement, and they're trying to navigate that. And we're also seeing the continued market pressure on reimbursement. That has been like that since the PBM business started. It's going to continue in the foreseeable future. There's not any changes that we see on the horizon within the market pressure of pharmacy. I also think that we'll continue to see mergers and acquisitions in this space relative to the competitiveness of the PBM space. It's very difficult for some of these smaller mid-sized PBMs to compete 
We recently saw the Elixir business downshift on the Medicare space. And so I think that this can, this market pressure will continue to put forth mergers and acquisitions in this space where smaller PBMs may be acquired. I also think that with the recent investigation of the PBMs by the FTC, that it could play a role in whether or not these mergers and acquisitions go through. So there's a lot of movement that we see in this space at, at this particular moment in time relative to the landscape of the PBM business. Now, Chad, I know that I know that you work directly with several of our congressmen and with association and, and different lobbyists. What are you seeing on our push to create awareness on PBMs and any potential changes in the horizon? I mean, I think the most glaring thing in this Congress is the bipartisanship around looking at this issue, where we live in a, in a country right now that is very divisive and you're Republican or you're Democrat. And not only are you, are you one of those, but you're on the far right or the far left of every issue. This does seem to be something that is getting a lot of bipartisan support, which means there's the potential to move reimbursement changes or legislation that affects PBMs. I think the the critical piece to that is, do we get Congress educated enough to do it right? And that's the hard part because you've got, you know, obviously you have the PBM influence, you've got the pharmaceutical company influence, you've got the provider influence. And somehow out of all of that, we have to educate these individuals to make the right changes. It, it feels like it's moving that direction. I would be interested in Sarah's opinion of that, but it seems to be headed that way. And I think we'll get some reforms, whether they're exactly what we want. I think that's probably always the big question. I think from a pharmacy perspective, it probably won't be exactly what we want, but it'll be a move in that direction and hopefully something that improves where we're going. I had a sort of off question before Sarah gets to that. There used to be a Saturday Night Live skit about banks and it was called the Change Bank. And the, the whole skit was about, you know, we can take a dollar and turn it into 10 dimes. Or we could do two quarters and five dimes. You know, we could do 20 nickels. And people ask us, how do we make our money? Volume. We make our money on volume. It feels like healthcare is stuck in this volume-oriented world. You need to fill more prescriptions to make enough profit to succeed. You have to see more patients to have enough profit to be a primary care physician. PBMs have to do more. We have to consolidate and get bigger. Always ends up being about volume. And I, I don't know if there's an answer out there to how do we how do we fix that? You know, so Sarah, like what's your opinion having the experience you've had? Can we shift this back to where healthcare is really about quality outcomes for people and not about hey, I filled 1,500 scripts today so I can survive? Yeah, that's a great question, Chad. And a lot of what we see that has driven that particular aspect of our healthcare space is preferred networks, limited networks, those kinds of things. The pharmacy community as a whole has seen so much market pressure on the price that in order for them to make money at this, they have to have more volume. So they have been pushed into this scenario from the PBM space as a result of that. And so to your point, where is it that we get back to the point of having quality healthcare and we're providing the right healthcare at the right time with the right products and services for that patient? And it's that Costco mentality, if you will, around, you know, that bulk buying 
is, is going to give us the revenue that we're seeking. But to your point, if we could create the value added component to say, look, we're going to manage this better, we're going to improve outcomes and you know help lower total cost of care, we can do that. But we have to make a sea change. And sea changes are very difficult because you're you're talking about changing the revenue component of not just the pharmacy community, but you know providers and PBMs and health insurance plans that is in this business. Absolutely. And to to Chad's earlier point about Congress not necessarily getting it right, the DIR fees is a good example of that people were pushing and 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 I think creating that awareness on the patients really getting taken advantage of because they're not getting the discounted price till six months later, the price drops. And so the copays are unnecessarily higher. And Congress stepped in, but they kind of just just moved the problem for pharmacies from one end to another. And, and I know coming up here this year, come January 1st, 2024, the DIR fees aren't going away. They're just getting moved over to the point of sale. And so if pharmacies that are dealing with DIR fees, I know that doesn't apply to a lot of our long-term care nursing home, but for anybody that's taking care of IL or, or long-term care home or, or retail, they're going to get double whammied with having to pay for Q4's DIR fees. At the same time, they're paying for Q1's DIR fees. Sarah, kind of through your experience, what's your thoughts and, 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 and advice for, uh, for pharmacies that are really facing a very difficult time come Q1 of next year. That's a great point, Tom. It is going to be very important that the pharmacies that are subject to DIR are accruing for these dollars today. So the pharmacy is reimbursed at a higher price point today because the contracted reimbursement is so beneficial to the pharmacy at the point of sale today. So that means that when the PBM is overpaying, if you will, for that product that they're dispensing, those dollars that they would be receiving in the form of payment today should be set aside so that when it comes time to pay for those dollars next year, they're not trying to pay for it out of the new reimbursement that the pharmacy receives on January 1st. Prior to DIR going into place back in 2010, pharmacy rates back then were at the point of AWP minus 18 and 19 and 20% off back then. So the PBM has shifted the dynamic over the last 13 years relative to pharmacy reimbursement. And if the pharmacy is not accruing appropriately for this, then they find themselves in a difficult situation when the clawback comes in the following trimester or quarter, however the recovery is, is happening. And with the new rates going into place on January 1st, pharmacies will be left in a very difficult situation of managing their revenue cycle if they've not properly accrued for it and set aside those dollars. The other component that I think really needs to be discussed with the PBM that is going to be recovering the DIR, and that is the actual cycle of recovery. We typically see the PBM recovering the revenue over a course of an eight-week period or it could be a 10-week period, just depending upon the PBM. I would like to see discussions being had where a pharmacy being subject to DIR potentially could pay that recovery amount over a longer period of time, as opposed to the traditional eight-week or 10-week or quarter that they have been 
paying these DIR fees previously. Or perhaps maybe there is a scenario that plays out that says, could the generic reimbursement be somewhat higher uh, to help offset the amounts that are going to be recovered back in that first trimester or first quarter that the pharmacy is subject to that helps them to pay back these dollars because they're going to get hit hard in the first four to six months of 2024. And it's going to be very difficult from a cash flow perspective for pharmacies to manage that as they continue to try to run the business, buy from their wholesalers, and continue serving the patients that they serve. Was this a mistake to push so hard for the elimination of DIR fees? Because ultimately, it sounds like what we got was what you just described, which is, yeah, you don't get cash flow for a quarter or two that you then have to pay some of it back. You now get paid the most restrictive reimbursement up front. And it's created this scenario where you're going to be paying that back quarter from 2023 and then first quarter 24, you're going to be basically reimbursed at the you know razor thin level. Was this a mistake? Because I mean, some of the organizations pushed for this. Yeah, understandably so. And, and I can understand why the industry is pushing for it. There's a variety of reasons, right? One, it's hard on the pharmacy. Two, it's hard on the patient. And in the end, I believe it is the right thing to do. However, I would suggest that we could have been a little more thoughtful around how we unwound DIR. And perhaps CMS could have provided some guidance to the Part D sponsors around unwinding DIR and the financial impact that it would have had on the pharmacy community so that they're not exposed to this enormous cash flow problem in the first six months of of next year. And so if there was guidance from CMS that said to the Part D sponsor, hey, we need to take measures such as allowing pharmacies to pay back the DIR over a longer period of time or adjusting the brand or generic reimbursement accordingly so that pharmacies can you know, not be put into such a difficult situation of cash flow problems to buy their drugs, pay for their overhead and employee expense. Those are things that are, are real, especially to smaller independent pharmacies. And even the large chain pharmacies, do they still have to manage this? Yes, they manage it on a much larger scale because their DIR dollars are in the hundreds of millions. And, and those recovery dollars, in addition to that you know, market pressure on the price, really becomes difficult for them to manage as well. Is that something that we should be working on now with CMS or is it it's just it's going to happen the way it's going to happen? I think there should be some guidance from CMS. CMS issued some guidance back in 2021 around the long-term care at home space. And they issued the guidance communicating to the Part D sponsors that patients who are receiving institutionalized level of care should be treated as an, an assisted living type patient. So in the same token, I think it's absolutely important for us to communicate this to CMS and advocate for change so that the Part D sponsors can pivot now before the January 1st, you know, deadline, you know, comes and on January 1st, we're then subject to those new rates. They have the opportunity now to make those changes. They won't if we don't do anything. Right. Sarah, we touched a little bit on the Inflation Reduction Act. I know that um, you have lots of experience with uh, GPOs. And I know that some GPOs out there are making some major changes right now as we speak. I don't know if that's in preparation of 
lower rebates because of the Inflation Reduction Act, but just give us your kind of thoughts on the Inflation Reduction Act, the impact that's going to have to pharmacies, but specifically around how GPOs you think are going to respond in regards to rebates. Sure. So there is certainly an opportunity for the GPO business to pivot and identify how they can serve their membership base in a better way relative to renegotiation of contracts for some of the manufacturers, especially as we look at insulin prices and the rebate dollars that are are basically going away. This is certainly going to impact pharmacy revenue as we look at the reimbursement. Obviously, cost goes down, but there's a there's a huge dynamic here at play that our GPO business has an opportunity to solve for and be innovative and create new ways to solve for these problems. And that, in turn, means that they should be going after contracts with manufacturers that secure discounts that are going to help the pharmacy as they navigate the new reimbursement from the PBM space. With every action, there is a reaction. And consequently, and again, going back to the things that the Inflation Reduction Act that they're just having on the pharmacy space, these are to some extent things that are good for our patient population. You know, going back to the DIR question here just a second ago, the patient impact here is significant. Patients were paying more at the counter because of DIR, because of those rates. In the same token, the Inflation Reduction Act has the opportunity to save our patients, your neighbors and my neighbors, dollars at the counter because the insulin dollars are going to be cheaper for the patient. But that is going to create significant cash flow challenges for the pharmacy community as reimbursement goes down. And likewise, cost goes down in the same token, where a pharmacy is getting reimbursed, say, $500 today for a branded diabetes product, and they're now going to get reimbursed $100 tomorrow or whatever that new value is. They're not taking that much money to the bank anymore. They now have less dollars to work with. So that means we have an opportunity in the GPO space or even in the PSAO space for any pharmacies that are combo pharmacies also dealing with this and creating new ways to work with manufacturers to bring savings. And maybe the savings don't come from the diabetes products. Maybe they come from antidepressants, cancer meds, specialty products, biosimilars. Where are those additional savings going to be introduced to the pharmacy as we continue to tackle this pricing challenge as the Inflation Reduction Act carries out and we see these changes happening across our industry? I think that's the hard part on the pharmacy side is that the pharmacies tend to be the one and ending up holding the bag. You know, insulin at $35 a vial is a, it sounds great to the public. Obviously, if you're on insulin, it's a wonderful opportunity for you to get your medications cheaper. But if the PBM is fighting to maintain their revenue and the pharmaceutical company is fighting to maintain their revenue, then the pharmacy is the one that's left without anything. And I know from an insulin perspective, you know, this can affect a pharmacy anywhere from four to nine percent of their absolute profit, which is enormous at a pharmacy. And replacing that is a challenge. We haven't, I think, thought about these things from a policy perspective or from a congressional perspective that it's wonderful to tell people your vaccines are you have no out of pocket for your vaccine. It's wonderful to tell people your insulin's at thirty five dollars. But if you're cutting the pharmacies off at the knees, 
you're going to have a bigger problem downstream with access and it it ultimately is is not going to get us where we want to go in terms of a, a savings to the healthcare system as a whole and that's another challenge i think unfortunately that pharmacies are going to face in the same first quarter of next year is how do I replace the profit that I was making on some of these insulin products, a fair profit, because now there's not, there's no dollars in there and they're going to have to look at different ways to replace that. And we haven't seen the list. We're supposed to get it next month of the first 10 drugs that is going to be on the Inflation Reduction Act to go into effect in 2026. But experts are saying it's going to be things like Eliquist and Zeralto and Simbacort, which seems very targeted almost to long-term care because these are the medications that obviously that we use more more than than any other sector of the business. So what is the pharmacy supposed to do? What advice, Sarah or Chad, that, that you think pharmacies should start looking at once we get those drugs? And it, if it is those those type of drugs, what's the focus? I think there's, you know, a, a couple of ways that we could approach this. One is going back to your comment, Chad, around, you know, value-based care. Pharmacies should be looking to partner with organizations that they can drive value and savings to the, the plan sponsor and or the prescriber community. Quality bonus payments are available from Medicare. Those quality bonus payments that are going back to the Medicare plan and potentially ultimately to those prescribers for avoidance of ER visits, avoidance of readmission. And if the pharmacy community can continue to drive value for prescribers and and even in the skilled nursing space, along with health plans, I think there's an opportunity for them to generate alternative revenue and to continue working to supplement revenue through alternative means to provide them the cash flow that they are going to need. So I think that's part of it. I think the other part of it is ensuring that the pharmacy community is working to advocate for change in the space. You pointed out, Chad, about you know, can we see Congress and CMS, you know, help the pharmacy community as we serve the long-term care at home patient population, folks who are aging in place, they're not being admitted into a skilled nursing facility. Can we work to advocate for the reimbursement that pharmacies should receive for providing those that additional care that they may not be given today if the pharmacy is is getting paid at a a retail type of reimbursement that does not compensate them for the unit dose packaging, the delivery of the medication, the coordination of care with the prescriber, and on and on these these list of things go that a pharmacy that is serving this complex patient who's institutionalized at home, receiving home health care or caregiver from the you know the, uh, the support of a family member or friend, pharmacies should be compensated for this and. The industry itself needs to make a change. And therein lies, I think, part of our opportunity to help keep pharmacies viable as we change in the post-COVID world around how we are actually serving patients prior to COVID look different. And now it looks more like a telehealth slash agent place, long-term care at home model and, and the industry needs to pivot and make those accommodations for the changes. Yeah, I think what I would add to that is, you know, throw the, throw the other buzzword of AI into that. I think that's going to play a significant role. Tom, to your question, you know, what do we do when we get this list September 1st? I think the first answer to that is, well, we've got two years. That's, that's a good thing. 
So th- this isn't going to happen to us till 2026. I think to Sarah's point, we have to stay focused on first quarter of 24, which is if you are influenced heavily by DIR fees, what are you doing about that? And then secondly, for these areas where you're going to see a drop in revenue because of $35 insulin, what are you going to do about that? That's going to hit you next year. But I think therein lies part of the solution to 2026, because I think smart pharmacies are going to look at their patient bases and they're going to maybe in some ways go back to what they maybe have done in the past, which is be more active in utilization management, be more active in formularies, be more active in identifying people that need to be on certain medications because of their setting. You know, I used to use the example of, you know, hospitals used to give away insulin R to uh, homeless individuals because they're like, they need it. They're homeless. And I'm like, you just, you know, it's, it's, it's benevolent that you gave them that medication for free, but you gave them the most sophisticated, difficult to manage medication to somebody that arguably doesn't even have a house. And now they have to calculate their R dose and inject themselves with it appropriately based on how they're eating and their meals makes so that's it's a it's kind of a hypocrisy. Well you have the same thing now is we're giving everybody their insulin at $35, but we've been using insulin for type two diabetics because you know maybe it's the easiest way to get them to their A1C goal. When in reality they need these new cool products like the GLP ones that are once a week one injection. They don't cause you to fall from hypoglycemia. They help you lose weight. Now, you know, as of, you know, a few weeks ago, they have cardiovascular benefit. And by the way, they're expensive, but they kind of recoup some of that revenue loss from a pharmacy perspective. And guess what? You're getting them on a better drug that has better outcomes for them. So there's going to be these back and forths between providers and cost and payers as we try to get our hands around what's best for the patient. And these 10 drugs that they identify September 1st are going to fall into that same exact category. Eliquis is great. We should definitely use it. But there are going to be subsets of the population that may be better off with a different medication that may or may not be less expensive or may or may not be influenced by the negotiated price of the eloquence. So pharmacists are going to have to kind of retreat into, fortunately, what they're great at, which is medication management and making good decisions for patients. And I think ultimately that helps. And it probably feeds what Sarah is suggesting that, hey, we should pay them to do this, a fee, a flat fee, so that they're not trying to get paid to do it by utilization management strategies on higher cost drugs. So hopefully that, you know, through this turmoil, we come to a better answer. Good. Sarah, you mentioned long-term care at home. Uh, so I thought that'd be a good opportunity to kind of pivot in that. That's another buzzword. Everyone's talking about it, except no one really has a good strategy or plan on how to do it. I know you've had a lot of experience with uh, that at-home type of patient. What's your thoughts? Just we'll start broad here a little bit, but kind of what's your thoughts? If you're a long-term care pharmacy and you're saying, man, that's lower reimbursement, that's a harder patient to service, that's extra costs, extra deliveries. You know, I, I really don't want to do that unless I absolutely have to. And kind of what's your thoughts on, on going into that, pushing into that, that, that world? We're talking about 55 million patients versus the 4 million of, of, of institutionalized patients and kind of what's your advice on, on, on as a pharmacy owner, long-term care pharmacy owner specifically, why they should kind of push into that market? I think it's an opportunity for pharmacies to diversify in the space of long-term care. As I mentioned before, we're seeing an aging population 
that is going to age in place and not into a skilled nursing facility. We do see more assisted living facilities, you know, popping up on every, you know, corner in the community, but there's not any more skilled nursing facilities, you know, being built to to manage that population. And so where I see this opportunity is the campuses that are independent living, moving into maybe perhaps assisted living, and then the ultimately maybe stepping into skilled nursing, our opportunity for the pharmacy industry is to help them to diversify in the space of as patients and individuals age into long-term care, where they're going to require some form of assistance, whether it's transferring, mobilization, getting to doctor's offices and grocery stores and the like, that is where the pharmacy community can continue serving those patients for it, especially if you look at your uh, typical combo pharmacy, there are retail on the front end, long-term care on the back end. Those pharmacies are diversifying in themselves in that space. In the same token, a closed-door pharmacy can do the same thing. And if, you know there are a number of closed-door long-term care pharmacies out there who are already doing this today. And I think for those pharmacies that are hesitant to get into this space, there is an opportunity to explore it, advocate through the various organizations to continue to push for long-term care at home reimbursement through the the payer community and through their GPO and also through the Alliance for Long-Term Care and get involved in this grassroots effort of making change in this space to allow patients to receive the type of care that they need to receive at home and not be forced into a retail or model of pharmacy that is not appropriate for somebody who requires assistance. Yeah, I, I applaud what, what you're doing at Exact Care and, and pharmacies like yours that are out there already doing this because you're doing it, you're proving that it, A, it can be done. And you're making a bet that I think a lot of us have made. I mean, I know I made the same bet when I came to this role at ASCP, which is that in 5, 10, 20 years, we're going to have so many older adults on so many medications that the only people positioned to help manage that are going to be pharmacies and pharmacists. That's just the reality. We're going to have 20 million more people in five years than we do now in that age group. If we get ahead of it and we learn and we become good at taking care of them, just like we did in long-term care back in the 70s, we're going to be positioned to when the government finally realizes, oh my God, we have to pay for these services or we have to reimburse for these services because we have people struggling in the community because they're not, they don't have access to them. They're going to be positioned. And I, I think that's the, that's the bet pharmacies need to make is that, yeah, it's challenging right now and it's not reimbursed the way we want it, but we need to dabble in it and start doing it because it's coming. And there's really no way out for the, for the government payers and, and the other payers out there. They're going to have to reimburse for these services. You mentioned assisted living it's a hospitality model. You know, you have to you have to have money to go into assisted living. The government doesn't pay for that. So if you're a if you're a dual eligible individual, you're either in a nurse a, a bona fide nursing home or you're at home. You know, maybe you have waivers in certain states, maybe you're lucky enough to be in a pace environment. But otherwise those are your two answers. And the government needs to step in. I think at some point they will reimburse for some level of assisted living. And I think they have no choice but to reimburse for long-term care services at home because there's just going to be too many people that need those benefits. So Absolutely. I think that's where it's going. 
Yeah, absolutely. I wholeheartedly agree with what you said there, Chad. It's yeah. uh, it's definitely going to change and, and CMS is going to have to realize that they're going to have to compensate the provider to serve these types of patients. Yep. Yeah. And I like how you're, you're both of you the same mindset. And I guess to kind of summarize that up, you know, a rising tide raises all boats, right? And and it's about getting in there and then being being an advocate, being a voice. If it's just one or two pharmacies or just a handful of, of associations or vendors talking about this, it, it, I don't know if much change is going to happen. But if all of pharmacy, whether they're retail background or long-term care background, if we're all coming together and, and joining our voices to say, hey, we need higher reimbursement because these are more complex patients. And so, Sarah, one of my last questions here as we kind of wrap up is, What's your advice to tell pharmacies, regardless of the segment that they're they're servicing, on how to create more awareness and be a louder voice to support this change in reimbursement for long-term care at home? Yeah, I think one of the ways that we can do this, as I mentioned before, is, is getting involved with the, the, the grassroots efforts with the Alliance for Long-Term Care at Home, an organization dedicated to advocating on behalf of the long-term care pharmacy community that is trying to serve these patients who require institutionalized level of care, but can't go into the, the assisted living facilities that are, are so costly for somebody, like you said, Chad, is, who is dual eligible. And, and so I think that's one of the ways we can do it. I think the other way that we do it is continue to advocate with CMS, advocate with your congressman to, to continue to push for these changes in this space advocate with your GPO or your PSAO to get them engaged, get them involved in the various efforts that this space is in, because pharmacies will continue to try to differentiate themselves and diversify in this space. And the more support that we have behind this effort, the more likely we are to see change. At the beginning of the interview here, I mentioned that for the foreseeable future, we don't, we don't see any changes. And so change, that sea change that I mentioned only happens when people get involved and there is enough voice in the industry and in the community to advocate for this change. And then I think we can see it happen. And, and the reason why I say I think we can see it happen is, is in 2010, 2011 timeframe, there were a few PBMs in the space that didn't actually reimburse the long-term care pharmacy for assisted living facility business. Those pharmacists that have, have been around since then may have recalled they were getting retail reimbursement for assisted living business. And that's tough because you're, you're providing the same level of service to that ALF that you are to you know, a skilled nursing with the exception of you know, maybe chart reviews for a patient. And eventually the industry, the long-term care industry was able to make these changes with those payers. And we began seeing the assisted living facility reimbursement that we see today in pharmacies being compensated for those services. In the same token, I believe long-term care at home can make those changes, but it only comes about because people are getting active in this space and advocating that the right thing to do for the pharmacy community is to reimburse them for the services they're providing. Great answer. I think it's great, great way to end. Chad, any any other uh, thoughts or, no. or questions? I think this has been awesome, Sarah. Thanks so much for the generosity of your time and your expertise. This is it's been great. Thank you so much for having me. It's uh, been a pleasure, and I look forward to continuing to um, work to advocate on behalf of the pharmacy community. Fantastic. Well, thank you, Sarah, for your time. 
Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. Thanks, everybody. And we'll see you next time on the uh, Our Experience podcast.